As you can tell, this is a pivotal and uh, we think a really exciting time at Gateway. God is doing extraordinary stuff. We're in the middle, actually we're toward the end, of a series of messages in which we're talking about responding to the culture. It's a critical conversation for us because there are so many things going on in the culture around us today, and things, frankly, that, that seem to be tilting in a direction away from those of us of faith. This may be an especially important moment for a conversation like this because we are in the middle of that every four-year cycle that we have in America where we kind of giddy up and decide who's going to lead us for the next four years and what our our government is going to look like. So there are, there are really all kinds of cultural conversations, conversational moments that are being created right now. So we thought it was a great time to talk about how to respond to the culture. Interestingly, Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote his first letter to a group of Christians who were living in the provinces of Rome, outlying areas far away from the city of Rome, who were experiencing some difficulty in relating to their culture. And in their case, the culture was pressing in on them, and they were beginning to feel the early echoes, the early hints of what would eventuate in periods of persecution. And so uh, the Apostle Peter is speaking in to exactly that environment. What's interesting about that is in some ways, we're going to talk about this more next week, but in some ways, uh, the culture in which you and I find ourselves in right now we share more in common with this context than people in the West have shared for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. We're in an environment not entirely different from the kind of environment into which Peter is writing this first letter. And he's talking to them very specifically about how to engage with the culture. And this morning, he gives what we're going to call Rules of engagement. So last week he went through this long section where he gives us sort of attitudinally how we need to approach different environments in which we find ourselves. You know, the environment of government, the environment of the, the workplace, the environment of our home. And we gave a phrase that we said kind of summarizes the emotional posture. We called it proactive submission. And over and over again, Peter used that word. Listen, you know, all authority that's gathered around you and over you, the Roman Empire, local governors, etc., submit. Because that authority has been appointed by God. And in the environment of your work situation, in their situation, he talks about house servants. Those of you who are in a house servant situation, and many of the people in the Christian movement at this point in, in, in the provinces outside of Rome would have been in that kind of work relationship. Hey, listen, submit to your bosses, whether they're good or harsh. Many of the people that he was writing to would have been, a a larger percentage would have been women. And many of them were women who lived in homes with men who were not practicing the faith. And what's the attitude? What do we bring to this environment? Submission, wives. Over and over again in every relational environment, he categorizes it, he couches it, the emotional posture is proactive submission. And today, he gets to a point where he kind of summarizes. Finally, he says, he's reached a pinnacle summary point, and he's just going to bullet out, spit out what are essentially rules of engagement for the culture. And it's, today is epic. 
We're going to end up with five guidelines, and we're going to stop in the middle of the passage because next week at the end of the passage, he's going to talk about suffering, and we've got much to say about that. But he's going to give five guidelines, spitting them out one right after the other, that carry us through this section, which give us the rules of engagement. He frames the whole conversation of engaging with the culture around us. So if you would, let's go old school, stand out of reverence for God's word. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3. I'd love for you to read along. So I'm reading from the New International Version. If you're looking in your phone, just dial into 1 Peter. If you've got a Bible open to 1 Peter, it's one of those at the very back of the New Testament. So if you hit Romans or Corinthians, go north. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 8. Finally, in summary, all of you live in harmony with one another. That's important. Think about this, for instance. Live in harmony with one another. He's going to talk now about rules of engagement for us connecting with, engaging with the culture, and look at the relationship that comes first to his mind. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. That's that word, Philadelphia. Be compassionate and humble. Okay, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. I know how... You're tempted to do so. That's the natural inclination for most of us, but do not. Instead, with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and I'll quote from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now we're going to end there, but I'm going to go ahead and read verse 17 to tee up next week. It's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than evil. You may be seated. So there's often a distance between what the culture around you believes and what you believe. There's a gap between what you believe and what the culture believes, and it expresses itself, of course, in articles that you read, news that you watch, television, movies. We navigate that distance, the distance between what we believe and what the culture believes. We navigate that distance in one of three ways. Number one, and if you're keeping score at home, I've got sermon cards in your program. So here are some fill-in-the-blanks for you. Number one, the three ways that we tend to navigate the distance between what we believe and what the culture believes. Number one, we separate from the parts of the culture we fear. We separate from the parts of the culture we fear. And by parts of the culture, of course, we're really talking about people. We separate ourselves from people. And this has been a movement 
within the Jesus movement for centuries. Almost from the very first, there were those who tended to separate themselves from the parts of the culture that they were afraid of, afraid of being infected or afraid of being persecuted. You would find Christians collecting in in communes, distancing themselves from the culture. You still see this today. Families sometimes think of themselves as as little protective units, and we're going to gather in and distance or separate ourselves from the parts of the culture that we fear. You know, uh, throughout especially the 80s and 90s, I saw many articles written, some of them from Christian contexts, accusing the American megachurch movement of exactly this of creating a little lifestyle enclave. What Christian megachurches all over the United States especially were doing is they were, they were creating these large institutions that you almost never had to leave. You could get food there. You could go there for entertainment. There are churches in America that have their own bowling alleys and movie theaters. So their young people could only spend their Fridays and Saturday evenings just with themselves, separated from the culture. Secondly, We surrender to the parts of the culture we enjoy. We surrender to the parts of the culture we enjoy. So think entertainment, the way in which we give ourselves over to entertainment. Or think, there are many things we could say here, but think, for instance, sports. You know, when we got the terrible, unjust news that the NFL was after Tom Brady yet again, the innocent Tom Brady, my boys and I were constantly texting one another, can you believe this? Surrendering ourselves to the culture. Third way that we can respond is we engage the parts of the culture we want to influence. We engage the parts of the culture we want to influence. Listen, those first two responses should give us pause. They're dangerous. It's always dangerous for us to surrender to the culture. We give up too much. It's also dangerous for us to separate from the culture. We are in danger of being Pharisees when we separate from the culture. As I said, many Christians over the centuries have separated, but it's hard to build a rationale for separation based on the example and teachings of the apostles. Peter does not talk about separating. He certainly doesn't talk about surrendering. They consistently encourage us to engage, but to engage on God's terms. And then Peter's going to give us some of those terms, some of the rules of engagement. Now, last week, as I said, we talked about engagement. We said the lead foot in our engagement should be proactive submission. This should guide our emotional posture toward the culture. The lead emotional foot for us is proactive submission. After our conversation last week. I had some interesting talks uh, after church, a couple kind of in here before I even left this room, and then a couple this week. I'm not going to answer these questions, but I think it's worth exploring. Think about, for instance, someone brought up to me, Jesus turning over the tables. Some of you have been around long enough to know that story. There's a time when Jesus goes into the temple. My house is to be a house of prayer, and he turns over all the money-changing tables. That doesn't sound like proactive submission. Are there limits to proactive submission? For example, does this mean a wife should allow herself to be abused? Of course not. Does this mean that we can't speak prophetically to the culture about sexuality issues or about economical issues? Of course not. 
But it does mean that constantly, constantly, our hearts should be guarded and guided by proactive submission. Remember, we said last week, Peter doesn't get very specific. He leaves that to us, to our context, and to our personalities. So let's get into today. This week, he drills further down. He gives us five guidelines for engaging with the culture that grow out of an attitude of proactive submission, and I think you'll see these fall out of the passage. Let's call these God's rules of engagement. So five rules of engagement that fall out of this passage in a kind of bulleted fashion from Peter this morning. And the first one is to keep your community connections clean. Keep your community connections clean. And by community, of course, I mean us. I mean community the way we use that word here at Gateway. I don't mean the neighborhood. I don't mean Dulles South. I don't mean Eastern Loudoun County or Northern Virginia. I mean us. I mean authentic Christian community, those of us who are connected with one another. And he encourages us to keep these connections clean. It's worth noting that when Peter moves to give us his rules of engagement for culture, the first relationship that he thinks of is us. Think about that. Let's acknowledge how challenging it is to keep our community connections clean. When we're under pressure, these are the relationships that feel the most intense and the first places that feel that pressure and the effects of that pressure from us. These are the relationships that feel the strain. So here's Peter's advice to his readers. He starts out by saying, so look, you live under normal conditions of ancient Near Eastern life and the normal pressures of marriage and family and finances. Plus, you live in a pluralistic society that doesn't look favorably at you. So make sure that you live in harmony with one another. The Apostle Paul said it like this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep, because I've given it to you, so make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He goes on, be sympathetic. Interestingly, the Greek word is sympathes, from which we get our word sympathetic. And according to one dictionary, this word means this, I like this, a readiness to enter into and share the feelings of others. Might highlight this word by talking about its opposite. The opposite of this word would be critical or judgmental or quick to judge. How easy it is to be critical of those who are very near to the center of our relationships. But instead, If we want to engage the culture, we will keep these relationships, those nearest to us, clean. We will readily enter into the feelings of those nearest. We will avoid a critical, judgmental spirit of those who are nearest to us. And he goes on, we will practice brotherly love. We will love one another. And we will be compassionate and we will be humble. We will keep these relationships clear. We will keep these relationships clean. We will do whatever we must to maintain this. When I was young, I thought of this recently because Diane and I are going on vacation this summer, uh, hoping that our boys, some of them, can go with us. And we're going to Polly's Island in South Carolina. And some of you know about or have been to Polly's Island. It's about 40, 45 minutes south of Myrtle Beach. It's in between uh, Myrtle Beach and Charleston. The beautiful little island, kind of rustic. And I say island, use that loosely. Polly's, of course, is the, it's on the Atlantic Ocean. And on its other side, is just a little sound. 
at some points you can walk across it at low tide. It's not really very deep. It's an island used loosely. And that sound, when I was a young boy, you could go uh, shrimping in that sound. It was loaded with shrimp. Now they warn you against infectants and pollutants, and they don't let you shrimp there anymore. But you could, families would take a net, and you know one person would get on one. Their sound was full of little inlets and rivlets. And you'd get on one side, and the other person would get on the other side, and you'd drag a net and pull it up onto the bank, and it would just be loaded with shrimp. And when I was a little boy, I remember my dad would take me out to shrimp the sound. And we had a net we would use, and I'd stand on one side, and he'd stand on the other, this long net. We'd drag it through. The thing is, the sound was also full of oyster shells and other kinds of seashells that could rip your feet to shreds. So you had to do two things. You had to wear some kind of foot gear, and you, they didn't have those neat little, you know, I would just wear tennis shoes that would get ruined and flop around in the salty water, and you'd sink into the mud of the sound, and it would also dirty the water. And as it dirtied the water, you couldn't see where you were going. You couldn't see what you were stepping on, an oyster shell or, a cr- worse, a crab. And so you had to be very careful to keep the water around you clean so that you could know where you were stepping. And the most important water, of course, to keep clean, it was great five feet in front of you to see what was coming, but the water immediately around your next step, that was critical to keep clean. Keep your community connections clean. Keep them clear. This is the way for you and I to engage the culture, to navigate the culture. Keep what's nearest to you, most important to you. Keep it clean. Honestly, more than one of you have heard me say this to you. There are quite a few of you who send me emails of Facebook posts or YouTube videos or comments that someone has made to you or that you have seen and you copy and paste those. I appreciate it. Some of them are really, really informative, but there is more than once that I have encouraged more than one of you, you should worry a little more about your own family. You spend so much time sending me articles and videos and Facebook posts, I don't know how you have time to spend time with the people closest to you. That's where engagement with the culture starts, with you and the people that are nearest you. If we keep those connections clean, that's where we begin to influence the culture. Because the culture around us looks and thinks, I want that. Second rule of engagement, meet mistreatment with blessing. Meet mistreatment with blessing. Do not meet abuse with abuse. Do not meet insult with insult. There are no exceptions here. Instead, we are to meet abuse with blessing. We're going to pause for dramatic effect because this is hard to do. Right now, all of us are thinking, yes, that sounds very, very biblical until we get into a situation in which we are being insulted. And then we rise up 
and we want to respond with the insult. Peter says, no, meet mistreatment. Meet mistreatment with blessing. This is an honest acknowledgement. There are going to be times when you're mistreated. Meet that with blessing. The second phrase, we need to spend a quick minute and do some work here. The way the NIV translates this, it sounds almost like, if you do this, you're going to be rewarded. But I don't think that's what Peter's saying. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Stay with me here, if you would, but with blessing. Because to this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And it depends on what the this refers to. So here's what I mean. Do not repay insult with insult or abuse with abuse, but with blessing. To this, and if it looks back to what he's just said, to this you were called, this business of not repaying mistreatment with mistreatment. To this you were called, and if you do that so that you'll get a blessing, then that means we're going to be rewarded if we do that. There's another way to read that that I think is the right way to read it. I think that this word looks forward to what he's about to say. He does the same thing two other times with the same word in the same grammatical construction. Sorry to get technical on you, but he uses the word this in exactly the same way, for example, in chapter 4, verse 6. And at another time in 1 Peter, where he uses the word this to refer to what he's about to say. So it will go like this. Do not repay insult with insult or abuse with abuse. Meet mistreatment, not with mistreatment, but meet mistreatment with blessing. To this you've been called, you're going to be blessed. You've been called to be people who are blessed. You're called to be the ones who are going to be blessed. So because of that, because you're people who are going to be blessed, that means this part is very, very doable. You're the people, no matter the circumstances, you're going to be blessed. So you can release that blessing to others. And I think that this looks forward. I think that's consistent with the rest of the passage as well. You are people, no matter what happens, you're going to be blessed. So release that blessing to others, regardless of what they do to you. Meet mistreatment with blessing, because you were called to to be blessed. So it's an easy thing for you. As a parenthesis here, I want to give you some fill-in-the-blanks that aren't exactly on point, but they're related. Terry Eagle went to a conference a couple of weeks ago, for a small group conference, and they, they did a session, within, which ended up being her favorite session, on culture. And she came back and, of course, redid the session for me, but it was awesome. I, based mostly on the book, or a lot of it was based on the book, Move Toward the Mess or something like that, Terry. One of our small groups is actually going through this book right now. So let me give you some of what was said in this session with Terry because I think it's profound, and then we're going to connect it to this point. So here's our parentheses. And this is for you if you're keeping score at home. These are the fill-in-the-blanks. Our ability to influence culture is limited by our disgust toward it. Listen, that should ring true for some of you because there are ways in which many of us are disgusted with our culture. And our ability to influence culture is limited by our disgust toward it. Let me step aside here for one second and just put a period on that, kind of highlight that for a little bit. There's a moment in Israel's history in the Old Testament in which Israel has been, the Lord has allowed for the nation of Assyria to come in and ransack Jerusalem and all of Judah. 
And at this time, one of their practices was, they did this with cultures other than just Israel, but one of their practices was to destroy the city and take all of the people captive and bring them back to Babylon or somewhere and transplant them into another culture. They felt like it was easier to keep them under wraps that way, less likely for there to be insurrection. So they did that with Israel. They ransacked the culture and they gathered all of the, especially the elite and the leaders, and they took them to Babylon and transplanted them into a new culture. And here they are, foreigners in a foreign land. Their culture has been devastated, their city has been destroyed, and the temple has been ransacked. They don't know who they are or what they're about. God, how do we live here? And into that context, Jeremiah the prophet writes them and says, look, Don't plot what I want you to do, chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Pray for the prosperity of Babylon, because if it prospers, you'll prosper. Don't be disgusted with the culture in which I have planted you. I did this. Part of it was to judge you. Now I want to see you prosper there. Build homes. Have families there. This is exactly the context in which you and I find ourselves. Peter, several times, remember, calls us aliens and strangers. Our ability to influence the culture is limited by our disgust toward it, and many of you are guilty. Secondly, we are programmed to naturally move away from the things that disgust us. We're programmed to move away from what disgusts us. Thirdly, disgust becomes a boundary between a person and the object of disgust. And this boundary can be really difficult to cross. So we build a boundary between ourselves and the object of our disgust. And if our culture, and in culture you have to substitute neighbors, people you work with, if they are the object of our disgust, we have built a barrier, a boundary between us and them. So to overcome disgust, importantly... We must intentionally move toward the messes, toward the the people and the situations that we find disturbing. This will involve being very honest about our own mess before moving into the mess of others because we're all messy. Our tendency is to engage the parts of the culture which is not to engage the parts of the culture which are difficult for us or difficult toward us. We don't often engage those parts of the culture. And when we do, when we engage the parts of the culture that are difficult for us or difficult toward us, we engage them usually out of fear or anger or disgust. You read it in every Facebook post. You hear it in the conversations of the hallway of Gateway Community Church. The fruit of that is that we belittle or demean or lash out at the parts of the culture that are distant from us. But we are called to bless, not endorse, but bless. This brings us to verse 10, where Peter quotes from Psalm 34. He's already quoted this psalm earlier in this letter. The theme of Psalm 34, don't miss this, the theme of Psalm 34 is this. The whole psalm, if you go read it this afternoon, the Lord will rescue the afflicted who trust in him, which is a perfect theme for 
Peter to insert into this passage. So he's grabbing from this Old Testament reference and he's pulling it into his letter. And the Old Testament reference is a psalm about, you know, God is going to take care of those who are afflicted if they just rely on him. And he uses that theme to reinforce what he's saying in this letter. God is going to look after the afflicted. It's awesome. And Peter riffs on that in in several places. And in the original context, David, who wrote the psalm, is in a very tough situation. Some of you know David's life. We're actually going to preach through David's life this summer. This is going to be awesome. I encourage you to come. But David is in a tough situation. Saul is chasing him. His life is in danger. He's away from his home and family. He's out of his country. He's living with the Philistines. And he's reached a point where he's actually had to convince the Philistines that he's nuts. He acts crazy. He convinces them that he's nuts because his life is in danger with the Philistines as well and with his own countrymen. And into that context, he writes this great psalm that essentially he says, look, if I rely on God, I know God's going to take care of me. But here's what's fascinating. In that context where God will rescue those that are afflicted, turn to the Lord, trust in him, put your heart in him, he also acknowledges in this psalm that he also must conduct himself wisely with goodness as his guide. David understands that his difficult circumstance, don't miss this, David understands that his difficult circumstance is not an excuse for bad behavior. Think about that. Even when we are mistreated, we are the people who meet mistreatment with blessing. So some of us need to allow our toes to be stepped on in this regard. Because there are some of you who will say about yourself, you'll admit, oh, I can be tough sometimes. You're the kind of person that gives Northern Virginians a bad reputation, and we have a bad reputation. You're the kind of person that goes out to eat, and the wait staff waiting on your table goes back into the kitchen and goes, oh, my Lord, avoid table nine. Those people are so demanding. You know it about yourself. Some of you will admit with a smile to one another, oh, I can be pretty tough sometimes. That's not good enough. You and I are the kind of people who are commanded to meet mistreatment with blessing. I can be tough sometimes. That's not enough. It's not okay for you to say, oh, I can be tough sometimes. That needs to be a repentance a confession. You need to be asking someone for prayer. True enough. It's true about you. Let's pray for God to change it. This isn't okay. Third rule of engagement. We need to be fanatical about goodness. We need to be fanatics about goodness, you and I. The word Peter uses here for be eager to do good in verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That's the word, that's the Greek word zelotes. This is where we get our word zealot. We should be zealots. We should be fanatics about doing good. What are you fanatical about in your own life? What are you a fanatic about? When we're fanatics about doing good, we will win if we are praised. And if we should suffer, we know we will still be blessed. So you see, we are the people who win either way. 
This should give us freedom and courage to do good regardless of how we're treated or regarded. We're fanatics about doing good. I read a story this week about a soldier that I thought was interesting. Every evening, the soldier would read his Bible and pray in his barracks before going to sleep, and he started incurring the ridicule of some of the soldiers around him, and especially a guy who was just across the barracks from him, the soldier across the aisle, would always make fun of him and insult him. And one night he said, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian while he was praying. The next morning, the soldier who threw the boots found his boots at the foot of his bed, clean and polished and ready for inspection. The Christian returned blessing for insult. And as a result, several soldiers in this guy's company became Christians as a result of this one soldier's actions. We're fanatical about doing good. Fanatics. We're looking for ways to do good. What's amazing to me is there's some of you here that I've known for years who I would describe exactly this way. You're a fanatic about goodness, and it inspires me. It should be true of all of us, Gateway. Fourth, make Jesus the governor of your life. Make Jesus the governor of your life. He starts this at the end of verse 14. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8 in the Old Testament. This quote is pulled from a time in Isaiah's life when the king of Israel was a man named Ahaz. Ahaz's motto, for those of you who don't know this part of history, seems to have been, in Assyria we trust, because he did everything he could to garner a relationship with Syria and get their protection and stay out of their wrath. But Ahaz's grandfather was Uzziah. And Uzziah was king over Israel. And during his reign, Uzziah's motto seems to have been, in God we trust. And Isaiah spent his entire time in court encouraging Ahaz, the grandson, to remember the faith of his grandfather, Uzziah. In particular, he wanted Ahaz to remember that he could not trust in Assyria. Not really. They were completely unreliable. God was the only one he could trust and the only one who could secure him for eternity and even for the period of his rulership. He reminded Ahaz that he should not listen to every rumor and every conspiracy theory. There's all kind of stuff coming at you, Ahaz. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. He should listen for the voice of God and trust that counsel alone. In the end, of course, Ahaz did not listen to Isaiah, and he did not listen to God. He followed the rumors and the fear-mongering, and all of Israel paid a heavy price for that. We don't have to get caught up with every trend and every theory, Gateway. We don't have to be frightened or afraid. I've honestly had times, I know some of you have as well, I have had times when I've been addicted to the news. Something in particular was going on, and I just could not get enough. And every time I come in, I've got... Fox News or CNN on. We don't have to be caught up in every slightly shifting wind change and every theory about what it might mean. What we have to do is set apart Christ as Lord. And that word set apart, and Gateway, if you've been here for a while, this will mean something to you. That's our word holy. 
And I've explained before, the primary definition for the word holy is completely different other than. So over here is a giant category that includes everything. All our emotions, all matter, all created things, our thoughts, uh, the stars, the moon, trees, that chair, you and I, our clothes. Everything is over here. And over here in a category all by himself is God. Unique, holy other why it's so incredible when in the New Testament these writers begin to call us holy. Somehow we've been transferred from this category to this category. But what he says is, I want you to intentionally, I want you to make it your aim to holify Jesus, to set him apart as governor, as Lord, as ruler of your life. We have to acknowledge him as holy. He's the one thing we need. The one thing that matters. He's the one thing that's set apart. Finally, fifth, he says, be prepared to answer. The fifth rule of engagement is just be prepared to answer. Now, I don't know if Peter's suggesting that you and I will have opportunities to explain ourselves or if he's saying it will be demanded of us that we explain ourselves. But either way, he's arousing us to be prepared to acknowledge Christ. He's arousing us to, to be prepared to explain the hope we have, its source and its strength. Be prepared to answer. As you move out into the culture, be prepared to offer up what drives you, what gives you hope. I'm reminded of a young man named Jonathan. I randomly knocked on Jonathan's door. He lived in South Riding. Years ago, when we were first starting Gateway, we started it by surveying the area, lots of neighborhoods. And one of the neighborhoods that we surveyed was South Riding. At the time, there were just over 500 homes in South Riding, and nothing else was here. So all of the rest of you people who uh, live here, your homes were not even a hint at that point. I knocked on Jonathan's door randomly, conducting surveys, and Jonathan's wife answered. She had absolutely no interest in church and no interest in talking to me, but she told me that I should come back later because she said her husband was curious about religious stuff and he might want to talk to me. So I came back at another time, knocked on the door, Jonathan answered, and Jonathan had a soft heart for God. When I went back to see him, he started peppering me with questions. He was asking me to answer for the hope that I have in me. I said, Jonathan, would you like to meet? And let's, let's talk about what a connection to God through Jesus Christ might look like. And Jonathan said, that would be awesome. Can I bring a friend? So Jonathan and his friend and I met five or six times while I explained that my life had taken on a completely different tra- trajectory because of a real connection with God. I explained the hope I have. Jonathan also took up that hope as his own hope. And he became the first person at Gateway. I don't even think we were called Gateway yet. He became the first person at Gateway whose life took on a completely different trajectory of explaining the hope that we have within us. You know, I've often wondered over the years why more people haven't asked me for a similar explanation. Maybe there's not enough fanaticism about goodness in me. Maybe there are areas where Jesus has not been given governorship of my life. So my hope gets clouded when it's projected out to others. 
I honestly pray that the next leg of my life will be all about giving an answer for the hope I have. I'm hoping that that big metal billboard that we're going to build over there for the next year will give us a megaphone and more and more people will begin to ask for an explanation for the hope that we have. Here's the surprising thing about this encouragement to me. We're going to end with this. Peter gives some qualifiers for our answer. Now, that's fascinating because he often doesn't get specific. But here, Peter doesn't just give the general soundbite, be ready to, the inspiring, be ready to give an answer for the hope you have within you. But he tells us how this answer should be framed and delivered. And honestly, his qualifiers are surprising. So don't dial out. We're almost finished. But first of all, I think it's fascinating what he doesn't say as a qualifier for our answer. He doesn't tell us that our answer should be professional or expert or fully vetted or fully angled or fully informed. This is the way we might approach it as Northern Virginians. He doesn't tell us that our answer should be straightforward and true. And of course it should be true. But he doesn't mention that. He doesn't tell us to be firm. He doesn't tell us to be clever. Make sure you have the upper hand. After all, this is a clever negotiation, so make sure you have the upper hand in this con- when you're giving a defense of the hope that you have. No. He tells us when you answer, do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Gentleness and respect, this means every time we write something snarky or mean-spirited or mocking, we are violating the framework which Peter has laid out for us. And we're to do this with a clear conscience. That means every time we leave a conversation and we're thinking, wow, maybe I shouldn't have said that, chances are you're right. Chances are you shouldn't have said it. Once again, Peter jumps on the theme of proactive submission, doesn't he? Be ready to give an answer. Do it with gentleness, always with respect. And you keep a clear conscience. You stay clean. You should know, I hate to end with this, but I'm going to end with this real quickly. So don't leave with, with what I'm about to say, okay? Just block this out. But you should know what I thought of here. I thought of the current brouhaha surrounding transgender bathroom usage. So you need to know that I believe, I'm going to tell you what I believe, but then I'm going to follow it with, saying that's not enough. I believe that this is craziness. I believe this is almost like, for our culture, this is like the emperor has no clothes. It's like no one will say, wait, this is nuts. You should use the bathroom that matches who you biologically are. I don't understand what the issue is. I know we're supposed to be sensitive, and I know that I'm I'm distancing myself from our culture in many ways, but this is just obvious to me, and I'm praying that our culture will, while while still trying to be sensitive to folks with this issue, let's just, uh, this is a ridiculous accommodation in my mind, but that's not enough. I need to be sure that my view matches the teaching of the apostles and the spirit of Jesus. And I need to be sure that when I communicate my view, wherever I communicate my view, I do it with respect and gentleness. And I keep a clean conscience. 
And I don't do it with ridicule or sarcasm or mockery. I don't demean others. Even though they're demeaning me, I meet mistreatment with blessing. I do as much as I can to acknowledge and accept. I had someone ask me one time, Ed, would it be okay if I invited a gay coworker to come to Gateway? This was years ago. My response, of course. I'll invite everyone, of course, no matter who they are, what they believe or what their practice, of course. Will they be welcomed? Yes, I think so. They will by me. I've never seen any evidence to suggest to me that they would not feel radically welcomed by Gateway. Well, how will you handle that, Ed? And my response was, I hope they feel so loved, so welcomed, and so accepted that their feelings will be hurt when I one day say to them, I think your lifestyle is distant from what God would have for you. I think it's less than God's best for you. I hope they'll be disappointed and hurt by that. They've been so welcomed, but they will hear that. You guys, this is how we approach every issue at work, every issue in our homes, every issue with our neighbors, every issue on Facebook and other social media platforms. I'm not saying we don't say what we believe, but we make sure that our belief is founded and rooted and we communicate it with respect and gentleness and with a clear conscience. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things for us to do. Lord, when we are insulted, we want to insult. We don't want to bless. feels like it's rare for us really to be asked to answer for the hope that we have. And when we do, we want to be experts. Sometimes, Lord, we don't approach that situation with gentleness and respect. And Lord, you know best that Often, for us, the relationships that are nearest to us are the muddiest. So, Lord, we receive your guidelines. We receive your rules of engagement this morning. And I want to ask in Jesus' name that you would help apply these at exactly the right place in our life that needs massaging. Create the right moment, the right interest, the right framework. Lord, apply this to us. We give you our our permission to break open our chests and massage your truth into our hearts. Lord, you've given us a moment over the next couple of years in which we will be able to insert ourselves with a, a much larger footprint in our immediate surroundings. God, I ask you in Jesus' name, that you would help us engage our area with blessing. That they would see us moving out toward them in harmony, expressing love for one another and humility. I pray, Lord, that we would have a, 
a ready answer for the hope that we have within us, but it would be given with such gentleness and respect, with, with such a clear conscience, Lord, that they'll be amazed. I remember what the people said about Jesus. They'd never heard teaching like this before. I pray, Lord, that would be our impact on others. Please. And Lord, I pray that you would make us fanatics about doing good, that we'd be inventing ways to do good, to serve our area, to offer ourselves. Catch us up in your purposes and your kingdom movement here, Lord. And we pray all of that in the strong name of Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.